Oh, at the very top of the sermon, I need to say from a pastoral perspective as well as a fellow human being that the events of this past week here in our country deeply grieves me. And I think it really and deeply grieves God, our Creator. And so uh, it is not the only motivation for me starting a new sermon series called Journey Through Scripture. And by the way, welcome to journey through scripture, but it is a, a sermon series that I've wanted to launch for some time now, and so I think journey through scripture is going to be an encouraging uh, walk for us and journey through us through scripture. So if any of you have ever wanted to take a walk through the scriptures, a sort of survey through the scriptures, and journey through the scriptures, Uh, it is going to answer some of our largest questions. And that is, who is God? What happened in our world? Why are we here as humans? What went wrong? Where do we all come from? And why is there evil and suffering and injustice in our world? And how does the story end anyway? So those questions we seek to answer uh, through journey through Scripture. And so my intent, my plan uh, is for this journey. You're already asking, how long is this journey? Well, the answer is 66. 66, does that mean 66 66 miles? Uh, 66, uh, what, what do you mean 66? Our journey through Scripture is 66 books of the Bible. And so each week, I'm going to take one book of the Bible and uh, give a narrative summary of that book of the Bible. And then I'm going to choose a passage within that book of the Bible, and we're going to look at that passage of Scripture together. So, uh, welcome to Journey Through Scripture. Some things you're going to need to take on this journey with you is a Bible, of course. I'm recommending the English Standard Version, or the New International Version, or the New Living Translation. That is... These are modern-day translations. They're accurate. I believe there is uh, great accuracy with the original languages of Hebrew and Greek in their translation, and there's good flow and readability in these versions. The second thing that uh, I'm inviting you to bring along with you as you come on this journey is an attitude. Bring your attitude. Have an attitude of humility and a prayerful attitude wanting God to speak to you as you come into this time of learning, that we are fellow sojourners traveling together. The next thing I'm inviting you to bring along with you is is time. You're going to need to set aside time to do this. And uh, of course, that can be in the morning, it can be midday, it can be at the end of the day, but you'll need to set aside some time. Other thing to bring along is some Bible study tools. You may want to get a a good Bible dictionary. And by the way, I don't think you have to purchase that. I'm sure there's one that you can find online, uh, as well as a good commentator and also a good study Bible. I'm recommending the ESV Study Bible. And then there's a book called How to Read the Bible Book by Book by Gordon Fee. The next thing you're going to want to bring along with you uh, is community. That's right. Bring others along with you. Don't take this journey all by yourself. 
In the same way, you wouldn't want to go on some long hike or journey all by yourself, but you'd want to bring others along with you so that you could share what you're learning and what you observe along that hike and journey with those fellow travelers. So what that means is during the week, meet up with your prayer partner and meet up with your small group, um, your community groups, and uh, discuss what it is that you're learning. The last uh, thing that you're going to need is the Holy Spirit. And it's not a thing, it's a person. It's God. You need God. I need God to help us understand the Scriptures. The Holy Spirit is God's very presence with us to illumine or turn on the lights for us as we get into the Scriptures so that this is not just an academic experience, but that we are asking the Holy Spirit to illumine the Scriptures, help us see who God is, and then change us as we uh, read the Bible. So, uh, is everybody ready? We're going to start, as I said, with a narrative summary today on the book of Genesis. And so, uh, I'll give a quick narrative summary, and then after that narrative summary, I'm going to choose a passage in the book of Genesis, and we'll have a devotional together. Uh, which hopefully can serve as a template for how you and I could have a devotion each day of the week as we read Scripture and pray. So I'm super excited about our journey through Scripture. Uh, a narrative summary of Genesis. Here we go. We're asking who wrote it. We're asking why did they write it. We're asking who did they write it to. And we're asking who are the major characters what is the uh, historical, cultural significance that's going on during that time? We're also asking, what are the major themes that are happening in this book? Now, don't worry if uh, you're not taking fast notes. You can always go back and listen to this. And of course, this is just a summary. Of course, if this summary doesn't go deep enough, uh, we're all invited to go back on our own and reread, uh, and that's what's so beautiful about this journey through Scripture, is that we're all students, we're all learning, uh, and we're all doing this together. So I'm not here trying to give you all the answers, because I don't know all the answers, but I'm a fellow traveler, I'm a disciple of Christ, uh, traveling, traveling along with you uh, on this journey through Scripture. So as we ask those kind of questions in the narrative summary, first of all, the title. The title, why is it called Genesis? You may have been curious. And the answer to your question, why is it called Genesis, is found in chapter 1, verse 1. If you read Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, it says, in the beginning. <laughs> so right, the word Genesis means beginning. It means the origin, and it's the origin and beginning for a lot of things, for human civilization, for the human race, for the origin of sin, and the origin of the Jewish people. Genre, what genre are we talking about whenever we get into the book of Genesis? Think about going into a large library, and uh, different ones of us have different tastes, uh, some of us like uh, history, some of us uh, like uh, action, some of us uh, like poetry, 
some of us uh, are, are drawn to many different corners and parts of the library. So as we come to the book of Genesis, this is a historical book. This is a historical uh, book, and so our role here in reading this historical book is that we need to understand that's the genre that we're reading. This is a historical book. Uh, and, and so it's packaged in narrative format. And so that's why there's all these stories that take place in the book of Genesis. It's a historical book, but packaged in narrative prose. And uh, a, a quick breakdown of the book and the 50 chapters there in the book of Genesis is, is two parts. The first part is Genesis 1 through Genesis chapter 11. And it tells the story of God, and it tells uh, the beginning of civilization. So there's creation. It tells a story of the fall of humanity. It talks about the flood. And it talks about the nations there assembled at the Tower of Babel. The second part of Genesis is chapter 12 through 50. That's then going to tell the story of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph and his brothers, um, you know, that covenantal line there and their relocation to Egypt. And so next week, whenever we pick up here in Exodus, in our journey through Scripture, we're going to be in Egypt because that's where the story is leading us. Well, our author here for Genesis is Moses. And this is very significant because as a reader of Genesis, we need to be cooperating with the author. The author is a real person, and the author is being used by God that has a specific intent and purpose. And so we need to cooperate with that author. Just like if you were watching a movie, you would want to cooperate with the director and the creator of that movie wherever they're going to take you. The same way with literature, same way with going into that library and that genre and the author. Uh, we are going to cooperate with Moses. Moses is not even around uh, when the events are unfolding in the book of Genesis. So how could he have been the writer, someone may ask. Uh, and the answer is that God is guiding Moses. God's very words are coming to Moses. God is illumining the mind of Moses, and he's writing this historical account of all creation. And that's very, uh, very, very significant uh, that it's written by uh, Moses. There, there are places throughout Scripture that gives credit to Moses as being this author of Genesis, and in fact being the author of the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. In fact, Jesus in the New Testament, in John chapter 5, verse 46, Jesus gives credit to Moses for writing about him. So Jesus gives credit to Moses, saying Moses wrote about Jesus. So, so interesting. We're, we're going to get to that as we look at our passage here in a few moments, about how Moses was actually writing about Jesus. Uh, but there's an original audience that Moses is writing to. There's a historical context 
And so Genesis is a very liberating document. It's a very empowering literature for ex-slaves. Do you understand that? That the original audience was the Exodus community. One of the major events that takes place in the Bible is the Exodus happening around 1400 B.C. God's covenant is where he ends up choosing a group of people. He will be their God. They will be uh, his people. And it's through um, Abraham that all nations will be blessed. That is, there is some seed uh, through the woman who's going to come. And of course, he's referring to Jesus. It's through that one seed that all nations are going to be blessed. Uh, And so... Um, As that story is unfolding, uh, the setting there of Genesis is in the ancient Near East. Now, this is going to include some of the oldest nations in the world. Assyria, Babylon, Egypt. Um, And so, so why did Moses write this book to that original audience? I mean, what was his intent? What was he wanting to do? What was he hoping that Genesis would do for these people. If Genesis did not exist in our Bible, what difference would that make? See, that's the kind of question that you and I need to be asking uh, as we journey through Scripture. What difference does this book make? And here's the difference. Here's the beautiful difference. Uh, This author, Moses, was wanting to encourage this original audience. He wanted this original audience of ex-slaves who still had the taste of dust in their mouths from being a slave, who could still see the scars of whip marks on one another's backs from being those slaves. He wanted to encourage this Exodus community and he wanted to encourage us, modern day readers, that the Creator God is faithful. That no matter how large the bullies are in your day, God is larger. God is in control of all human history. God has a covenant promise to you and to his creation. And he's going to redeem all humanity through this promised line, despite their sin and despite their rebellion. That's why Genesis is being written is to say that you've been liberated from being production slaves for the gods of Egypt and the gods of Assyria and the gods of Babylon and the gods of that empire. You've been liberated. I know you, says God. I made you to have communion with me and to reflect my image and character in all the world. Wow, what a robust message. What a message of hope and destiny and purpose. And so some of the summary main points and themes found here in Genesis uh, is God is creator. He made all things. He's self-existent. No one created God. He existed before time. He's transcendent. Next is humanity's fall into sin. And the humanity there, as Adam and Eve, they're acting as representatives for all of humanity. 
and John Calvin, one of the Protestant reformers, French reformer John Calvin, talked about sin. He says that sin is vicious, it's violent, and wrecking of shalom and God's peace. And so as a result of man's disobedience, humanity's disobedience, his relationship with God is then changed forever. And his relationship with other human beings is changed forever. And his relationship with the creation is changed forever. All because sin enters the story. Another thing that's talked about in Genesis is God's covenant. That even though humanity has chosen sin, and sin is entering the world and is going to wreak havoc on the characters and creation itself, God is covenanting with humanity. And He's covenanting by this promised seed of a woman that's going to uh, happen, and that is going to be the promised Messiah named Emmanuel, God with us, or uh, in the New Testament we find out this is Jesus Last major theme in the book of Genesis is God's mission. God's mission is that God is going to bless all of the nations through Abraham. Abraham is God's chosen vessel, and what he means by that is through the seed of Abraham. Through this seed, this this line, this covenant promise will find its fulfillment in Jesus Christ. And he's going to bless the nations through Jesus Christ and that all who trust and believe in him will be saved. Uh, And so, wow, there is our narrative summary. We'll do this each week. There's our narrative summary on the book of Genesis. And so uh, now we're going to take a sampler passage here in the book of Genesis today. Uh, Today we're looking at Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 20. One And again, as you get started each day looking at a portion of Scripture where you're coming to read and pray, you want to make sure that you start with prayer. You want to humble yourself and we want to ask God to illumine the Scriptures, open up the Scriptures so that we can understand and so that we can be changed. Now, some of the questions that I'm asking as I go through Scripture and I'm inviting you to ask as you go through Scripture is, what do we learn about God in this passage? Right, so you're looking at any passage of Scripture, whatever text, whatever portion of Scripture you're reading, you want to ask that question. What do these verses teach me about who God is? Always ask that question. The next question to ask is, what do these verses teach me about humanity? What do these verses teach me about our fallen condition, humanity's fallen condition, my personal fallen condition? And then the last question I like to ask of the passage and of the text that I'm reading is, where is the grace, where's the good news in these Bible verses that seeks to minister to that brokenness that we all experience as humans. Well, for the note takers, as we look here at Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 21 today, the three main parts to this. For the note takers, it's the cast, the crash, and the cross. 
First of all, we'll, we'll look at the cast. And we mean the cast of the story. The cast of the story here. Verse 1. Read along with me in Genesis chapter 3, uh, verses 1 and following. The serpent was the shrewdest of all the wild animals the Lord God had made. One day he asked the woman, Did God really say that you must not eat the fruit from any of the trees in the garden? Of course we may eat from the fruit of the trees in the garden, the woman replied. It's only the fruit from the tree in the middle of the garden that we are not allowed to eat. God said, You must not eat it or even touch it. If you do, you will die. You won't die, the serpent replied to the woman. God knows that your eyes will be opened as soon as you eat it, and you will be like God, knowing both good and evil. Okay, so the cast. The cast. As I'm looking here in these verses, I'm asking myself, what do these verses teach me about who God is? And what do these verses teach me about uh, some of the other characters and cast members that I may be seeing in this passage. Well, the very first character, major, major character that we see in this text is God. We see God, that God is here in this very uh, passage that, 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 that Moses is writing in this chapter 3. And by the way, go back and read chapter 1 and 2 of Genesis where you get this historical, uh, beautiful account of God being creator of all things, and that he made all humans in his likeness, in his image, he created us. And so as we look at this God, this creator God, we, we have to understand how God relates to his creation. That this is a God who's not distant from his creation. The creation didn't happen just because, uh, as some uh, secularists, uh, some modern secularists uh, would say, and, and, and perhaps even others throughout history would say, that, it, that the creation, they would say, creation happened only because there was an evil force and a good force. And that good and evil force just collided and boom, there was creation. Rather, the God of Scripture is personal. You can know this God. You can know this creator. That there's a relationship that this creator God has with creation. And we know that from other parts of scripture, such as Proverbs. There's a book called Proverbs. Chapter 8 says that as God was creating all things, as he's creating the world, and as he's, and as he's creating humanity... There's joy. There's love. God is delighting in what he's creating. See, the Bible's account, journey through Scripture, tells us that this is a loving God, that God created, and that we exist because of God's love. God delighted in making creation. He delighted in making us in his image. That God existed before the world was created. He was transcendent. Now, this is about the time that some people say that, you know, Christianity and, 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 and science, you know, they, they kind of disprove each other, right? And the answer is, no, they don't. 
Um, Christianity and science are not in competition with each other. In fact, Protestant Christianity laid the philosophical foundation for science. It's beautiful if you go back and look at that part of history. And so, yes, within Orthodox Christianity, there are many different views of God in creation. Is it six literal days, 24-hour days, now within Orthodox Christianity? Some scholars would say yes. Other scholars uh, would say no. It's not 24-hour literal days. We don't know how long those days really are. And about evolution and creation, again, those don't disprove one another. But within Orthodox Christianity, God could very well have used a process of evolution somehow to bring about creation. What we know is that God is creator, that God was not created. Now, when someone starts asking me personally, how does quantum physics intersect with the book of Genesis? I humbly just say, I don't know. I, I don't know. Um, I, I do know that science does not disprove Christianity. And I do know that science teaches us a lot and can help us sometimes interpret the Bible. Now, let me give you an example. We know that science might tell us that we're reading Scripture incorrectly. An example of this, and then it's happened to all of us, an example is science says, does the Bible really teach that the sun revolves around the earth? We, we had that one wrong, didn't we? So we, we know what scientists who are Christian say, that, that, and they say uh, you know, that there's a consensus. There are scientists who are Christians, and there's a consensus among them and they say that we were not genetically related to one human couple. Okay, well, that doesn't make us go, oh no, that means uh, Genesis can't be real. Uh, it, it makes us have a mystery. It makes us uh, understand that uh, even when I read this text, it looks like it's saying that God created Adam and Eve, and it looks like that all the families of the earth came from this one couple Adam and Eve. I don't understand it, is what I explain to my science friends. And my science friends who are also Christians, that's usually their response to is, we don't understand. But this is what God's Word says, and so I'm trying my best to read this text. As you are, as you journey through Scripture, you're trying your best to read the text, and there's an Adam and an Eve, and everyone came from them. And even though I don't have an, eye, an answer for this, that's where I stand. God created Adam and Eve and all of humanity from them. Now, uh, around God and being creator, when we look at this cast. We also uh, see here this, 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 this serpent. We see the serpent listed here, and the serpent is crafty. The serpent is a liar. The serpent is lying to Eve and to Adam. Now, elsewhere in Scripture, in Revelation chapter 12, we learn that this serpent is Satan. The serpent is Satan. Revelation chapter 12 speaks of the serpent of old called the devil and Satan. 
And by the way, there's some really good explicit language that you can use for this beast. But he misquotes Scripture. He's wanting to convince the woman that God really isn't who God is saying that he is. And that's usually what Satan tries to do to you and to me in present day. Another character we see here is Adam and Eve. They're acting as representatives on our behalf. And you and I may say cynically, well, thanks a lot, Adam and Eve. Thanks for being our representative. What a dumb decision. And we may try to view ourselves as being more moral than they are, that that somehow we would have made a different decision. If we would have been there in the garden, we wouldn't have sinned in that way. Or we perhaps think that if human beings just keep on evolving, perhaps there's going to be some perfect, finally there's going to be some perfect human being that's going to uh, evolve. And the answer to that is no. The answer to that is we are all born into sin. The Bible says in Psalm chapter 51 verse 5 that we are born into sin. And the book of Romans, chapter 5, tells us that Adam, Adam was a representative for all of humanity. And so whenever Adam sinned, we all sinned. And so that is where we get original sin from. Uh, onward here, three things to do with the cast that we're looking at here. Number one, never think, oh, that's a neat story. Those are neat cast members, but none of that relates to me. Um, We need to imagine ourselves in this story. Instead of being so prideful to think that uh, this story doesn't relate to you, we need to see uh, ourselves and you need to see your friends and all of humanity as being in this story. The second thing to do with the cast is never believe that Satan isn't real. Or never believe that Satan is more powerful than God. Now, yes, we should be on our guard, yet we should also remember that our enemy wants us to fail. And yet, uh, greater, Scripture says, greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. So, yes, Satan is coming against you and trying to attack you, uh, but he's not more powerful than God. The third thing to do with this cast is never believe that God made us all robots. God hasn't set us up for failure, but rather we are participants in the story. We We are all cast members in this story. Find yourself in this story. The crash. Remember, we said the cast, the crash, and the cross. Okay, the crash. Let's continue reading Genesis chapter 3, verse 6. It says, The woman was convinced. She saw that the tree was beautiful and its fruit looked delicious. And she wanted the wisdom it would give her. She took some of the fruit and ate it. Then she gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it too. At that moment, their eyes were opened and they suddenly felt shame at their nakedness. So they sewed fig leaves together to cover themselves. When the cool evening breezes were blowing, the man and his wife heard the Lord God walking about in the garden. 
So they hid from the Lord God among the trees. Then the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? He replied, I heard you walking in the garden, so I hid. I was afraid because I was naked. Who told you that you were naked? The Lord God asked. Have you eaten from the tree whose fruit I commanded you not to eat? The man replied, It was the woman you gave me who gave me the fruit, and I ate it. Then the Lord God asked the woman, What have you done? The serpent deceived me, she replied. That's why I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, you are cursed more than all animals, domestic and wild. You will crawl on your belly, groveling in the dust as long as you live. And I will cause hostility between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. And he said to the woman, I will sharpen the pain of your pregnancy and in pain you will give birth. And to the man he said, the ground is cursed because of you. All your life you will struggle to scratch a living from it. It will grow thorns and thistles for you, though you will eat of its grains. By the sweat of your brow you will have food to eat until you return to the ground from which you were made. Then the man, Adam, named his wife Eve because she would be the mother of all who live. And the Lord God made clothing from animal skins for Adam and his wife. Wow, as we look at this crash, watch here in verse 7, it says, at that moment... At that moment, it's like a quick crash happening. It's literally by, like being in a car crash when you don't plan for it. You didn't anticipate it, and it happens that fast. Verse 7 says, at that moment. History was changed at that moment. The crash was worse than we can ever imagine when sin entered the world. There's denial that takes place. We keep ourselves from imagining how bad it was. Sin is similar to a bottle of poison that was tipped over and began to leak into every known space of humanity and into every known space of creation. It affected every area of humanity and our world. Think about some of these areas that I'm going to list off right here. It affects our sexuality. The fall of humanity and sin affects our emotions and our psychology. It affects our in intellect. It affects our genes, our chemistry, our physiology. It affects our sociology. It affects race relations. It affects class relations. Sin affects politics and power. And sin and the effects of sin affects creation and natural disasters. Now, in our text here, we see the effects that sin has on work and our rest. Verses 17 through 19, it says that the, the ground is cursed. You will struggle to scratch a living from it. It will grow thorns and thistles for you, and by the sweat of your brow, you will work it until you return to the ground from which you were made. See, every worldview is looking for a villain. 
every worldview, wherever you're coming from, it's looking for a villain so that it can give some remedy for that villain. And so similar here with journey through Scripture and looking here in Genesis about this crash that took place. We have to define what is the crash. And as we define the villain, that's going to help us define what the remedy is for the villain. If the villain is physical, then mere moral discipline can be your savior. If the villain is psychological, then therapy is going to be your savior. And if the villain is social, then social institutions are going to be your savior. But the Bible says that the villain is none of those things. The Bible's story, the journey through Scripture, this very first book of the Bible, Genesis, is saying is that the villain is sin. The villain is sin, and if the villain is sin, there must be, there has to be some remedy for this sin. And it's going to be Jesus. It's going to be the cross. It's going to be the cross. And before we get to the cross, let's, get, let's look at three things to do with the crash. So three things to remember about um, the, the, the crash is, is to remember that desiring something isn't what makes it sin. Uh, de- desiring isn't what makes it sin, but it's, but it's over-desiring that thing. That's when that thing turns into an idol. And that idol will take advantage of, 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 of us. Is there a, de- a desire to be loved? Well, that desire to be loved isn't sin. Rather, how one goes about being loved and how we go about getting that love and perhaps sometimes demanding that love from others could uh, very well be sin. So temptation, there in verse 6, it says that they saw that the tree was beautiful and it looked delicious. Aesthetic beauty, God made it. It looks beautiful. That doesn't make it sinful. Uh, Sin is also in verse 6 where it says they were convinced. I gotta have it. That's what sin is. It says I gotta have it. Regardless of what God says, I gotta have it. No matter what the consequences are. I'm deciding to be Lord and King and God of my own life. Sin is an attitude and a desire, deep desire uh, and motive of the heart. The second thing to remember about the crash is that blaming others for your sin doesn't remove the, the shame of sin. Look at verse 12. The man, the man blames the woman and God. It's the woman that caused me to sin. Or God, you gave me the woman. So blaming someone else for your sin doesn't remove your sin. Verse 13, the woman blames the serpent. Uh, The third thing we need to remember here from the crash is that if you're in sin or if you're about to enter into sin, cry out to God to change your desire. Ask God to change your desire. It's it's a simple prayer like this. Oh God, maker of my soul, creator of my very soul, the one who knows my needs and my desires, change my desires. Name that desire specifically right there, whatever it is that you desire. Uh, God, change my desire. Help me delight myself in you. Meet my deepest needs, I pray in Jesus' name. Let's look at this cross 
Let's look at this cross. Again, uh, if the villain is, is mere you know, physical or social, then that's going to be the remedy. But, but, but the villain is sin. Therefore, the cross is what's given here as the remedy. Uh, verse 15, we're going to reread verse 15 and verse 21 in our passage. Verse 15 says, uh, And I will cause hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. Verse 21 says, And the Lord God made clothing from animal skins for Adam and his wife. Here's the hope in the passage. Remember that question that you're asking as you go through Scripture? Where's the grace? Where's the good news in this passage? Here it is. Here is the good news in this passage. It says that this promised seed is going to strike the head of the serpent. Yes, the, the serpent is going to strike his heel, but this promised seed is going to crush the head of the serpent. This is the good news in the passage. What it means here is that there is a, another representative that's going to come through this seed of the woman. It's, it's, it's the promised one who's going to replace the first human representative. See, there's going to be a second Adam. Romans, in the New Testament, Romans chapter 5, uh, says that Jesus is going to become the second Adam. That is, this second Adam is, uh, is going to do something greater than the first Adam could do. There's going to be another representative. There's a promise of a specific human who's going to do battle with the evil power. He's going to do battle, and so it's going to come at great cost to himself. That's what it means that this serpent is going to strike his heel. It's going to come at a great cost to him. He's going to defeat the enemy for the sake of guilty human beings like you and me. That's good news. It's right here in this passage. The very first book of the Bible is sharing the gospel with us. That God is covenanting. He's promising to have a plan of salvation. That even though there's been this horrific crash, there's the cross that's already promised. Verse 21, how's he going to do this? The Lord God made clothing from animal skins for Adam and his wife. See, it's coming through an animal. There's going to be spilled blood for a sacrifice for sin. This is the first picture of redemption in the Bible. A covering for us that God's mercy is going to protect us from, from God's righteous wrath against sin. God, God says, you're wearing fig leaves to cover your sin? That's not going to do. That won't work. That won't work. You need a better covering. Your attempts to cover yourself won't do. Your, your attempts at covering that sense of inadequacy and shame and guilt is not enough. We do that. We, we tend to uh, sew fig leaves together to cover ourselves. And God responds to those fig leaves and he says, I have something greater than fig leaves to cover you with and it's through bloodshed. Put yourself in Adam and Eve's shoes. There's no death up until this very point. 
For the first time, they're witnessing death for the first time when for the first time they're, 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 they must be saying, wow, our sin is serious. Our sin is serious that God is causing the death of an animal. And it's from the death of that animal that those, uh, those skins from that animal will be our covering. Again, all of this is pointing towards a Savior who's going to come. It's once we get into the New Testament and as we journey through Scripture and as we're looking back at Genesis and these other books here in the Bible that the story begins to come together. And so as the story progresses, Jesus is the second Adam that cries out and takes God's justice not on the tree of life, but on the tree of death to give us life. Romans chapter 5, verse 17 says, If because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Here are three things to do with the cross as we close this first book of the Bible, Genesis. Number one, let the cross cover you. Let this promise of covenant and let this promise of the cross be what covers you. Instead of you covering for your own faults and your own mistakes and your own sin with denial and defensiveness and and hatred of self or even goodness and a lot of morality, As the lead singer Bono seems to understand this in U2's lyrics of their song, Grace. It says, Grace, Grace, she takes the blame, she covers the shame, removes the stain. What once was hurt, what once was friction, what left a mark no longer stings because grace makes beauty out of ugly things. Grace finds beauty in everything. So the historic gospel of good news is being shared for us and ask us here in Genesis, are you tired of hiding behind the fig leaves? Are you tired of hiding from your sin and your shame? And that's because you can stand on your own record, which is of no hope, or you can stand on the record of Jesus Christ, the second Adam, who lived a perfect life for you and who is God's atoning sacrifice for you. And you can finally say in humility, I ate the fruit. I ate the fruit. I'm responsible. The promise of the gospel today is to say, I ate the fruit. This is the beginning of your renewal and your refreshment. This is one of the very first lessons as we go uh, and journey through Scripture where, where, where we say, hide in, Christ says, hide in me. I will make you beautiful. I will be the one that covers you. So let the cross cover you. The second thing, real quickly, real quickly, the second thing is let the cross grow in your life. Let this cross grow in your life as you journey through Scripture. Let the cross grow more and more. May you become more and more dependent on the finished work of Christ. And the third thing 
to do with the cross is let the cross speak louder than your current narrative. Speak this out to each other. Remind yourselves that, that every wrong will be made right. That because of the cross and because of God's covenant, that even God's creation, all of his creation, will be restored forever. Journey through scripture, this is how we know who God is. Journey through scripture, this is how we know who we are. And journey through scripture, this is how we know God's beautiful plan for us and all of creation. Let us pray. Father, thank you for leading us through this journey of Scripture. Lead us, guide us, change us. Overwhelm us with such good news. And we pray all of this as you change us and change our world. In Jesus' name, amen.